Thank you, Tom. It's a joy to be with you this morning, privileged to stand behind this pulpit and to enjoy a wonderful weekend together. Just uh, some great preaching from brothers in Christ, wonderful worship. You're a loving congregation and uh, also valet parking. What's there not to like? Um, it's, it's all good and I've enjoyed every minute of it. I continue to be surprised that uh, Tom and the leadership uh, invite me uh, year after year to come and be part of this. Although I was just thinking, I've sent so many of our members to this church, I'm just good for business. And, and uh, we'll continue to try and be uh, one who sends uh, all the exiles of California uh, your way. Um, pray for us as the church in exile there on the West Coast, uh, as we hold out the light of the gospel and do it gladly and firmly and joyfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a joy to be here. If you're ever in the Anaheim area or Orange County, please come and visit us. We'll try and be a, a home from home. And before we turn to God's Word, the Bible tells us to weep with those that weep. And I just want to sympathize with you, another disappointing year of Cowboys football. And um, just uh, my heart goes out to you. Not really, but uh, you know. As uh, Stephen A. says on ESPN, you should have saw it coming. Um, I've actually a friend up in Edmond, Oklahoma, who's a cowboy fanatic, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, and he told me that he intends to write a letter uh, to the football club to ask that at his funeral, several of the players might act as pole bearers because he wants them to let him down one more time. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> so... Um, all of that aside, take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter 4, uh, 1 Peter 4, and I've been assigned 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. We've been in a series this weekend, love the church, love that theme, uh, Jesus loves the church. If you love Jesus, you'll love the church, and uh, we've been challenged in several areas. At 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I addressed the issue of the church at prayer, and this morning I've been assigned the theme, serving and and, and loving the church. And uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful passage. And so keep your Bible open. I'm reading from 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Um, my chosen uh, text is the New King James. So follow along. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I like the story of the, the man who came to a small West Texas town, and he checked into the only motel that was available. And as he was checking in, he asked the owner if his room had a phone to which the man replied, well, we just don't believe in that round here. He says, what about a television? He says, no, we don't believe in that around here. He says, I take it I won't get a newspaper in the morning. Nope, we don't believe that around here. The customer looked at him and said, well, what do you believe in West Texas? He replied, we believe that the second coming of Jesus is near. To which the stranger replied, well, if he's ever been here before, he's not coming back. <laughs> well, he is coming back, amen? Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, those who look for him, he will appear a second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 10, 37 promises us that he who is coming will come and will not delay. Time is marching on, and it's bringing us ever closer to that golden hour when the Lord Jesus will return for His church at the rapture, just as He promised in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
And I'll tell you this, one look at this contemporary moment we're in, this present time within history, and I think you and I would conclude that the stage is being set for the soon return of Jesus for his church. Now, it's my conviction, I know it's this church's conviction, that Jesus' return is imminent. It's an any moment possibility when Jesus will come and catch us up to heaven at the rapture. It's the next prophetic event, and it requires no fulfillment of signs to take place. Although having said that, let me make a qualification. It is fair to say, is it not, and fair to conclude, is it not, that the rapture won't take place in a vacuum. And the reason I say that is because the rapture is a trigger event. It will have a domino effect, setting in motion prophetic events that will come in quick succession. The stage will need to be set globally for the events that follow the rapture. And we're witnessing that very thing, are we not? Israel reborn. You know, when Israel came back into existence in 1948, there was only 6% of the Jewish people in Israel. Today, over 40% of the Jewish people are in their homeland. That's the super sign. Globalism, panic, wars, catastrophes. We see technologically a creeping cashless society. We see Russia rising. We see Chinese power and the kings from the east rising. We see European convergence, which will be the home of the Antichrist kingdom. We see apostasy in the church, a, a falling away. We see rebellion and lawlessness. The spirit of the Antichrist is among us. We see the days of Lot and Noah, morally speaking. We see that people are going about their business as if judgment is not coming, marrying and giving in marriage. These global trends, these moral conditions, these economic realities, and these political facts, they're all runway lights for the approaching return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming to deliver us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that. We have not been appointed to the wrath of the tribulation or the day of the Lord. Jesus is coming to deliver us from that at the rapture. And so given that reality, we need to get serious about serving the Lord and loving His church. And that's where we're at in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious. I've called my message, Time to be Serious. It's high time. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Wake up. And put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Make no provision for the flesh. So let's come and look at these words from Peter as he tells us to get serious about praying loving, sharing, and ministering within the church, given the imposing and inspiring reality of the end times. Now, let me put uh, the text in its, its context. This letter is probably written early 60s. It was written to a church that was beginning to experience soft persecution, sp sporadic persecution in the form of, of mockery. And, and being pushed out to the edges of society. And, and so Peter writes consistently through this letter about Jesus' return. Paul, Peter uses the, the thought of eternity and the return of Jesus Christ eminently to motivate them to stand and serve and keep going. Look at chapter 1, verse 7, and you'll see this. That you may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scroll down to verse 13. Therefore, guard up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
then we've got our text here, chapter 4, verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Go to chapter 5, verse 4, speaking to faithful pastors, the chief shepherd shall appear and you will receive the crown of glory. It won't fade away. The thought of eternity, the reality of Jesus' imminent return is found throughout this book, and we're coming again to take up that theme. That's the wider context. The nearer context in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, the passage we're in, Peter has talked about the coming judgment. He has talked about eschatological matters. He has warned those who walk in lewdness and who malign believers that judgment is headed their way like a train down the tracks. So that's the text and the context. One other thing before we get into the the bones of it all. Question. Was Peter mistaken when he said the end of all things is near? I mean, that's uh, 2,000 years ago. Was Peter mistaken? No. Because Jesus' return at the rapture is imminent. It's impending. We see that in James 5, 8 to 9, the judge is at the door. Revelation 22, 20, Jesus says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. No, he was right. The next thing in the prophetic calendar is the rapture. Nothing needs to take place for that to take place. The incarnation has happened. The redeeming, atoning death of Jesus Christ has happened. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened. He has ascended to the right hand of God. That has happened. Nothing needs to happen. No event needs to take place. The next event, the next big move in redemptive history, the return of Jesus for the church. So he wasn't wrong. There's nothing stopping Jesus from returning. But, but let me say this also. While we believe in the imminent return of Jesus, imminence doesn't mean immediate. It's not the next moment, it's any moment. It's not the next moment, it's any moment. Jesus' return is possible any day, impossible no day. That's kind of the, 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 the thought here, and, and we need to embrace that. So no, Peter was not mistaken. Jesus could come at any moment, and, and you and I need to be ready for that. I mentioned my friend Dr. Mark Hitchcock, who's written 25 books in prophecy. He, he tells the story of a, a girl who was set up on a, on a date, and, and, and she was waiting for the boy to come at a certain time, and, you know, 6 o'clock to pick her up and go to dinner, and she got all, as we say in Ireland, all dickied up and put some makeup on, put a nice dress on, did her hair. She was ready and excited about this date. It was 6 o'clock. Then it became 6.15, 6.30, 6.45. She gave up. She took the, her clothes off, got into her dressing gown, got a bowl of popcorn, sat down to watch a movie. About eight o'clock, the door rings. She opens it. It's the guy. He looks at her and said, you know what? I'm two hours late and you're still not ready? <laughs> well, well, you know what? Let's be ready for Jesus' return. Let's be serious about the end of all things. And so here's where we want to go in the time that remains. Four things. Four things. Keep your head clear. Keep your heart warm. Keep your home open. Keep your hands busy. Let's work through the text. Verse 7, but all, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The first thing that Peter encourages is that they keep their heads clear, that they be unclouded in their thinking. I love the NIV's rendering of 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, where Paul says to Timothy, you know what? Keep your head in all situations. That's what Christians' leaders do, and that's what Christians under their leadership do. They, they keep their heads in all situations. They're, they're unclouded in their thinking. And Peter needed to say that. He needs to say, look, be serious and be watchful. 
Because when it comes to the second coming, when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus' return, some of God's people can get hysterical, imbalanced, and unhinged. They get driven and defined by sensationalism and fanaticism. That's why Paul, in in his Thessalonian letters, which have the, the most doctrine on the second coming bar, the book of Revelation, there's a mention about the second coming in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. Nevertheless, he has to say to them, but I want to remind you to walk properly and be quiet and work with your hands. You don't want, I don't want to see hysteria. I want to see you become unhinged. Raise your family. Go to your work. Love your neighbor. Be a productive, uh, you know, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians, it seems to have got worse, and he challenges those who are walking disorderly, who have disengaged from life and are kind of living off the church or living off charity. And he says, you know what? If you don't work, you won't eat. And so there's this hysteria at times that has been attached to the second coming of Jesus. We have watched it, 1988, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. He didn't. And so he wrote another book, 1989, 89 reasons why Jesus is going to return. You had the Y2K, you had blood moons, you have a date setting. Look, there's one thing you can be sure when someone sets a date, that's not the date. Because no man knows the hour or the day, not even the sun. So, so Peter's counteracting reckless living. And he calls for sobriety and sensibility. He tells them here in verse 7, keep your heads screwed on. The word um, translated in New King James here, serious, is, is a word that carries the idea of being level-headed, not impulsive, not swayed by fluctuating emotions or events. Um, it, 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 it speaks of just being level-headed and clear-headed and self-controlled and balanced. The word sober is the opposite of intoxication or drunkenness, and so it speaks of being alert and watchful. And so Peter calls them to that. And, he, and certainly in the text of this passage and, and the surrounding verses, the thing that's to shape our thoughts is the revealed thoughts of God in His Word. You go back to chapter 1 and, and verse 22, uh, Peter says, since you have been purified, Uh, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Chapter 2, verse 2, newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word whereby they might grow. Chapter 4, where we're at, He tells them to no longer live according to the will of the Gentiles, but to discover and do the will of God. Look at verse 2, that you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So Peter wants them to be sensible and sober, thoughtful in their reactions and their reflections. He wants to keep their heads screwed on, and he wants them thinking thoughts after God, thoughts that God has revealed in His inerrant Word. He doesn't want them to be victims of fluctuating emotions or events. And I think that's so helpful, because as we've just kind of outlined um, there's a lot of stuff going on in our day that can throw you off, can make you imbalanced, hysterical. You can lose your mind and become angry and negative and edgy. And Peter says, no, keep your head screwed on, read your Bible. Things are not falling apart. Things are falling into place. So so be clear-headed. The end of all things is near. God is sovereign. Jesus is king. And the king is returning for his bride. They were not to panic 
They were to be clear-headed, and they were not to panic. They were to pray. Look at verse 7 again. We want you to be serious and, and watchful, sober, and seeing, so that you might pray intelligently and effectively. See, James warns us, one of the things that makes our prayers ineffective is distraction and double-mindedness. And we don't want that, and Peter agrees. The Lord Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray, and Peter echoes that. And so you and I are to have a mind that thinks thoughts after God, a mind that's informed and, and shaped by biblical revelation and prophecy, the end of all things. And as we uh, understand uh, the course of history and, and the, the sovereign outcome in, in triumph through Jesus Christ, we remain at peace and we pray watchful of that event. In fact, I just challenged myself, by the way, a little list to run through since I'm, since I'm called here to pray. And certainly it's in the context of the second coming. Here's some things I think you and I should be praying about in relation to Jesus' soon return. We need to pray for our own moral purity. He's pure. We need to be pure as we approach the rapture and being brought into full likeness to Him. We need to pray for spiritual alertness. We need to wake up. The night is far spent. The day is at hand, Romans 13. We need to pray for missions, that the gospel would go out among all the nations, which will indeed bring about the final uh, coming of Jesus in power and glory. We need to pray for our loved ones who, who um, are like those in the, day, the days of Lot and Noah, seem to be oblivious to the danger they're in, going about normal life when there's nothing normal about life and the events they're living through. We need to pray for God's kingdom to come. Jesus taught us that, Matthew 6.10. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122, verse 6. And we need to pray for a love of His coming. See, to those that love Him and love His appearing, He will appear a second time. One other little thought here before we move on quickly. Prayer not only requires a clear head, prayer produces a clear head. Don't you like that? In, 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 in the anxiety-producing days leading up to Jesus' return, you and I need to clear our heads through biblical thinking. Bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ and His, coming, His present and coming Lordship. But, but we're not only to pray with the clear head, as we pray and come to a sovereign God, our heads will be cleared and our anxieties will be removed. Peter in this letter will say, cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. Paul will say in Philippians 4, don't be anxious. You know, the Lord's at hand. Take your anxieties and turn them into prayers. And as you turn them into prayers and spend time before the throne of God in the company of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the company of, of, of the triumphant church, in the company of the host of uh, angel armies, won't peace flood your heart? Prayer has us focused on God, not on man. Prayer has us focused on God's redemptive plan, not on present moment history. Prayer engenders confidence in Jesus Christ. Prayer makes us think theologically and gives us perspective. I like the story of the student who was burdened and bothered by stuff that was going on in his life. And he was looking an answer, and so he decided to go and speak to the great Boston preacher, Phillips Brooks. And so he had an appointment with uh, this man of God, and, and he went and met him, and then he returned to his college room, and his, his friend asked him, well, what did Dr. Brooks say about your problems? To which he said, oh, I forgot to mention it. He said, it didn't seem to matter any way and any more when I was talking to Phillips Brooks. I love that. One writer who uses this illustration, says that should be the effect of prayer. 
you and I consciously coming into the presence of God. Before ever becoming a recital of our own problems, prayer is a devotional exercise whereby we lose ourselves in God and we rise from our mortality to His eternity. We are are from our smallness to His greatness, from our weakness to His power. I like that. The end of all things are at hand. So, So be biblically balanced. Think thoughts after God. Let those thoughts inform your prayers. Pray with a clear head, and your prayers will clear your head in the presence of a sovereign God. Number two, keep your heart warm. Keep your heart warm. The second thing Peter does here is he encourages them to keep their hearts warm. The, 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 this was a people on the margins. They were aliens and strangers in the culture. The world was treating them in a cold and callous manner, and so they needed to regenerate their own heat. And they needed to warm themselves by the fires of Christian Calvary love. And you know what? The early church did that. Did that abundantly. They did it in such a manner that even the secular culture looked at them and said, you know what? These people know how to love each other. There's three things here about love you don't want to miss. First of all, it's a first love we're being called to, a fervent love and a forgiving love, a first love above all things. Love was to be a priority for them, and it it was. I don't have time to take you through these texts, but if you go to chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, 17, 3, 8, 4, 8, 5, 14, love is mentioned throughout this letter. The one that maybe stands out is borrows almost the same language. Chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. This is a, a matter of first importance. Paul, when he teaches about love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, says, look, You might be able to unravel theological mysteries and talk us through the five points of Calvin and the seven dispensations. And you might have a martyr spirit where you're willing to fall on the fire for the gospel. And you might have a heart for the poor and sell all you own. But if it's not driven by Calvary love, if it's not defined by God's love, it's nothing. And you're nothing. Your life is being wasted unless it is shaped by love, defined by the cross. I had a little statement I used in a series on that passage to our congregation where love is absent, it matters not what is present. And where love is present, it matters not what is absent. Better a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf and hatred therewith, says Proverbs. In fact, to make that point, I remember hearing a message by Dr. Haddon Robinson many years ago. He said, look, Sunday morning, maybe, you know, the, the, the pastor's not firing in all cylinders and you get a little distracted. And, and he says, you know what, let's make that distraction a little profitable. I want you to doodle. Grab the church bulletin, and I want you to get a pen and start in the left-hand corner, right at the top, and write zero and zero. Do one line, two lines. Fill the whole page with zero. And then I want you to add it up. Tell me what you got. What do you get? Zero. But put the digit one on front of the first zero. Then what do you get? You get ten a hundred, a thousand, so on, so forth. That adds value to all the other numbers. And he says, so is love. It's all zero until you add love. And Peter would agree. But then it's not only a first love, it's a fervent love. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but th- this is an interesting Greek word. It, it means to love to full capacity. It was a term that was used to describe a horse in full gallop or an athlete in full stride. 
And, and this is in the present tense, and so they were to constantly cultivate this kind of love. They were to love in full stride. Love that. It's challenging, isn't it? For many years I misunderstood John 13 verse 1 that said Jesus loved his own until the end. And I thought that meant chronologically, circumstantially, he loved them right up to the cross. But that's not the meaning of the Greek word. The word really means he loved them to the full extent. That's the challenge to every member of this church and every pastor of this congregation. Love the body to the full extent. Are you giving all you can to the moment you're in toward the needs that need to be addressed? It's an exacting, enduring love. In fact, we can move on to the third thought. It expresses itself in forgiveness. This love expresses itself in throwing a veil over another's sin or shortcoming. Look at it. Above all, have fervent love for one another. Here's how the love will show up. Here's how the love will manifest itself. Here's how love will be measured. It'll cover a multitude of sins. Now, we're not dealing with sin as an offense before God. We're dealing with sin as an offense before man. This is an echo probably of Proverbs 10.22. Sorry, Proverbs 10.12. And given the fact they had become recipients of God's love and God's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, they were to extend this forgiveness to one another. You know, they say love is blind. But Christian love is not blind. It sees the fault. It feels the injury. But then it covers the sin. It throws a blanket over the person's shortcoming. And and you know what? The church needs this. Why? Because the church, to use Luther's term, is made up of justified sinners who nevertheless sin. And they need this virtue. Um, Maybe an example of it would be Joseph, right? In his ignorance, learning of Mary's pregnancy, um, he he concluded perhaps on faithfulness, but, but not willing to put her out to public shame. He decided to put her away, divorce her privately. What love Joseph must have had for Mary. There was scandal, it seemed, but he wasn't going to scandalize her. He threw a veil over her sin. And boy, God give us that grace. Wayne Grudem says, Where this kind of forgiving love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. Like the story I read in a marriage book about an old couple that were celebrating their 50th anniversary and, 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 the, and the, the, the girls of the family were gathering around the grandmother and, and asking, and you know what, 50 years, that's a long time. In our culture, almost unheard of. What's the secret? And she says, well, I'll tell you this, very simple. Before Henry, Henry and I got married, I determined to write down a list of 10 things that would always, I would always forgive him quickly for and forget. And after we got married, Harry would do certain things and I would say to myself, lucky for him, it's on the list. <laughs> and the girls are wide open and they're like scrambling to their handbags to get out paper and pen. Tell us the list. What were the 10 things? Oh, she said, to be honest, I never get around to making the list. So every time Henry did something I didn't appreciate, I'd just say, lucky for him, that one's on the list. Now, of course, that can be qualified. Some sins truly need to be addressed. But as a modus operandi, this is the way Christians operate. Quick to forgive. And even when things need to be addressed, there's a desire to limit the scandal and the hurt of the person who is even hurt others. I just think this is a wonderful thought. Uh, Old Vance Havner, the Southern Baptist preacher, said some Christians have all their dispensations right and all their dispositions wrong. 
We need to love fervently. Let's move to this third thought. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It's worthy of a study, but I want to get to the last thought about ministry. But look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Calvary love not only is expressed in forbearance and forgiveness, it's expressed in hospitality extended. This is a word that means a friend, a friend of a stranger. It's the opposite of, you've heard the word today a lot in our culture, xenophobia, you know, a fear of strangers. This is the opposite. And, and uh, you, you'll find a, a, a thread about hospitality through, throughout the Bible. In fact, God richly blesses the hospitable. Listen to this. I, 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 um, this is interesting. Abraham offers hospitality to the Lord and receives the promise of a son. Lot offers hospitality to the angels in Sodom and ends up having his life saved. Boaz offers hospitality to Ruth and ends up with a wife. The widow offers hospitality to Elijah and receives a miraculous provision of food. The Shunammite woman offers hospitality to Elisha and gets her son back from the dead. And the book of Hebrews tells us that some who offer hospitality have entertained angels unaware. There's something marvelous attached to hospitality, and it deserves to be developed more, but, but time won't allow us. The, the challenge is just simply this, and it was such a vital ministry in that day, but, but the challenge is this. We need to hear this afresh, opening our homes, entertaining believers, because most of us live in suburbia. And, with the, and, and attached to that is this Western mentality, it's an English phrase, every man's home is his castle. And after a busy day and a, a crazy world, many of us, myself included, like nothing more than getting home to the castle and pulling up the drawbridge <laughs> and just enjoying some peace and quiet. And there's a place for that, and there's a time for that. But we need to be good stewards of our homes. We need to use our homes as a gospel tool. The early church did it magnificently. I'll ask you a simple question. Do you host a small group in your home? Could you? Um. Could you invite a new family to the church through your, you know, visiting ministry, hospitality to help them navigate countryside uh, um, Bible church? Could you loan a room to an international student and give them not only a wonderful American experience, but a wonderful Christian experience in America? I think you get the point. One writer said this, Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Not everyone can serve on the foreign field, but who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door, a table, chairs, some bread and meat for sandwiches? Congratulations, you qualify for the ministry of hospitality. Something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the backs of heads around the table. You see the expressions on faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks around the table. Everybody has a voice. Church services are on the clock around the table. There's time to talk. When you open your door to someone, you're sending them this message, you matter to me and to God. You may think you're saying to them, come over for a visit. You're really sending a message you're worth the effort. That's good. And by the way, do this without grumbling. Now, Peter's rich, poor Richard's Alamac says fish and guests are the same. They start to stink after three days. All right? We can understand that. But do this and do it without grumbling. Because it can be messy, time-consuming, costly, and disruptive. Let's get to the last thought. Keep your hands busy. This is verses 10 and 11. As each one of you received a gift, 
Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the, the ability that God supplies so that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. We're always to abound in the work of the Lord as the rapture approaches. Peter concurs and he does it with a twist. Serve. Serve in any capacity. Serve anybody. But don't forget to run in your lane, because you have a lane determined by your spiritual gift. The best way to serve the Lord is in the way He has gifted you to serve. Now, um, you and I are to serve in, in, in any way we can but we're, we're through spiritual gifting, there's a best way to serve. We've, we've each got a, at least one spiritual gift, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us that. Uh, and verse 11 and Ephesians 4, 7 tells us that. And we have it here. It, it's actually emphatic in the Greek here in 1 Peter 4. Each one emphatic has a gift. I want to remind you this morning, each one of you is a child prodigy. You ever heard of a child prodigy? Maybe in mathematics or music. These are children that are brilliant. They're gifted. Well, you're a child prodigy of the heavenly Father. God has put you together in, this, in your mother's womb wonderfully. Give you certain abilities and aptitudes. That's natural gifting. Then on top of that, when you got saved... At your new birth, he gives you the birthday gift of a spiritual gift, at least one, maybe more. And that combination of natural gifting and supernatural enabling makes you a child prodigy. And a wonderful blessing to Countryside Bible Church because you come loaded down with gift. And you're not just to occupy a seat, you're to fulfill a role. And Peter tells you to do that. Just go through a few things quickly. This, again, is a sermon series, um, but, but a few things stand out. Just follow along quickly, and we'll wrap this up. The definition. What is a spiritual gift? Well, you'll notice here that each one has received a gift, and you'll notice also it's the manifold grace of God. And grace and gift are, come from a family of words that just speaks of God's favor and bounty towards someone. So, so a spiritual gift is a spiritual grace. It's a spiritual favoring or capacity or ability from God. It's a heightened capacity to serve within the body in an area, in a function or an office that gives you greater ease and greater effectiveness. Now, now you may not have the gift of mercy, but you're still to be merciful, Right? You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you're still to reach your neighbor for Christ. But your gifting will be an area that comes easy. And you'll be effective in that area. That's what gifting is all about. You'll notice in verse 11, we have this, this ability which God supplies. This, it's a spiritual equivalent of the words spoken by Eric Little to his sister. Remember the story of Eric Little? And, and how, you know, he, he sensed a call to the mission field, but for a time he ran uh, in the Olympics for, for Scotland and the United Kingdom. And his sister's bothered by this, thinking he shouldn't be in Paris at the Olympics, he should be in China for Christ. And, and in answer to Jenny, you'll remember that moment in the movie, he says this, God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. I think that's true of natural gifting, but it's also true of spiritual gifting. At some point, maybe through trial and error, there'll come a point where you're going to see to yourself, God has made me a teacher. God has made me a servant, a leader, an administrator. And when I do that, I feel His pleasure, and I sense His hand. The design, well, we can say here it's to bless others. Verse 10, minister to one another. Gifts are given for the edification of the church. Tom read Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. Can, can I kind of twist the John F. Kennedy statement? Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. Because that's why you're here at Countryside. Yeah, 
The pastors will minister to you. The body will love on you. And and you'll benefit from being part of this wonderful expression of the body of Christ. But you're here for a purpose, and that purpose is others. And you're going to bless them through just general service and particularly your spiritual gifting. Spiritual gifts are not toys for you to play with. They're tools for you to build with. And they're also for God's benefit. Verse 11, God's going to be glorified as you live out his will and express the the character and likeness of, 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 of Jesus Christ. Notice too the diversity. Manifold grace of God. This is our, a Greek word that gives us our English word, polka dotted, variegated, many colored. Beautiful, isn't it? As God looks down in this congregation, spiritually speaking, He sees a, a, a palette of color and giftedness. And He can't wait for you to discover it and deploy it and grow in it. And then as you grow in it, in joining with others, this church grows and the world looks on at, at, at a body of people from all kinds of social and ethnic and backgrounds, and, and they're, they're this wonderful tapestry of God's grace manifesting itself in acts of love. Paul gives us list. Peter gives us two categories. I, I'm not going to develop this. It's worthy to be developed, but, but I don't think I missed the text much by just simply saying there's two areas he wants us to minister, and you can speak or you can serve. And if you're going to speak, make sure that your words are crafted by the Word itself, so that you're speaking the utterances of God. And you can serve with your hands and, and with your heart. Finally, the development Notice we're stewards of this giftedness, stewards of this giftedness. A steward was a house manager. He had no wealth for his own, of his own. He managed and multiplied the master's wealth under the master's direction. And the master has deposited us gospel wealth in the form of spiritual gifts. So God sent the son, the son did his work, returned to the father. And the son sent the spirit at Pentecost, to indwell us, baptize us, equip us, gift us. And so now the master's deposited something in your life that he wants you to develop. Here's a little kind of worksheet for you to work through as as we close. How how do you discover your giftedness? Well, certainly talk to your pastor and and, and a friend. But here's a quick list. Number one, study and pray. Read some books on it. Study the Bible on it. Pray about it. Number two, get busy serving. It's hard to steer a parked car. And if God's going to find, uh, help you find what you ought to be doing, you better be doing. And then as you do general service, and anything that comes to your hand, there'll be an area you'll begin to sense, God made me fast here. And I sense his pleasure. And therefore, you'll begin to develop your spiritual gift. Start with your natural gifts and desires. God prepares us for all that he's preparing us for, and I don't think he wastes even our natural gifts. And often he marries our spiritual enablements with our natural gifts. Look for effectiveness. Book of Proverbs says, gift makes room for itself. Seek the advice of others. Let others kind of measure your effectiveness and say, yeah, I I see that. Uh, I forget who said it, but, you know, if God gives you the gift of preaching, he'll give others the gift of listening. (laughs) And if they're not listening, you're not preaching. (laughs) And so listen to others and let them speak into your, your life. Well, that just about does it. God doesn't pour his grace into us for us to become a spiritual dead sea. Whatever God is doing in you, He wants to do through you to the benefit of others, to the praise of His name. Let me read this and pray. See if you don't identify with this. This is a story about four people in the church whose names are everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. 
The church had a financial responsibility and everybody was asked to help. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it. But you know who did it? Nobody. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Then the church grounds needed some work and somebody was asked to help. But somebody got angry about that because anybody could have done it just as well. And after all, it was really everybody's job. But in the end, the work was given to nobody and nobody did a fine job. On and on this went. Whenever work had to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody visited the sick. Nobody gave liberally. Nobody shared his faith. In short, nobody was the the best and most faithful member. Finally, the day came when somebody left the church and took anybody and everybody with them. Guess who was left? Nobody. Paul would say, "Come," or Peter would say, come on, you're a child prodigy of the Heavenly Father. Unwrap the gift. Marvel that God is using you in this way. Find a joy in that and then spread that joy to the body that they may increase. Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. We trust that we'll put a capstone on this conference. We've been challenged to um, know the marks of a good church. We've been challenged to assemble and stir one another on the love and good works. We've been challenged to love the bride. We've been challenged to get on our knees and and, and pray that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can imagine or think for your glory in the church. And as we wrap up this morning, we, we hear the clock ticking. The midnight hour draws near. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Help us to wake up. It's time to be serious. So help us, Lord, to have our heads clear and our hearts warm and our homes open and our hands busy for your sake. We pray for anyone who's here this morning and doesn't know Christ. We pray that they may heed the admonition of the Savior himself, be ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. May they come to you today so that you may come for them tomorrow. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.